This podcast is brought to you by Rode Microphones, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com. Hello and welcome to the Soundworks Collection interview series. My name is Michael Coleman and this week we're featuring the 2015 Mix Magazine Presents Sound for Film event hosted at Sony Picture Studios in Culver City. This event focused on a theme of the art of sound design, music, dialogue, and effects in an immersive world. The topic of this first roundtable discussion is on music, composing, editing, and mixing beyond 5.1, where the panelists discuss the soundtrack's integration into the sound design and the potential for music to extend beyond the screen. Panelists included Andy Koyama, Bill Abbott, Joseph McGee, Stephen Saltzman, Will Kaplan, and was moderated by Dennis Sands. You can find out more about this year's Sound for Film event returning to Sony Pictures Studio on September 17th at mixsoundforfilm.com. I hope you enjoy. Let's start out. The first kind of area I thought we'd talk about is music and surround. Um, again, this is, you know, sometimes a little bit of controversial subject. Personally, I love music in surround. I, in my mixes, I, I use surrounds a lot. And so my first question to the panel is, what do you guys think about music in surrounds? Are you for it? You shy away from it? What do you, what do you guys feel? I'll, uh, I'll jump in and then I think Andy should ultimately probably answer. But most, I work with Danny Elfman a lot and Dennis mixes all of Danny's stuff and he does put a lot of music in the surrounds and I never mess with it and I bring it to the stage and typically it ends up going uh, into the console and out the speakers just as Dennis mixed it. And I, I you know, I, obviously there's times when you feel like you might wanna pull back and the whole deal with Mark's talk in the Cary Grant, which, which I thought was amazing, um, doing collaborative uh, strategy with the sound design people may may uh, require to be doing something a little different than as it was delivered. But typically, um, I think it's, uh, uh, it's a good thing. Yeah, definitely, because it you know, enhances the audience's immersive feeling that they're in the film when the music is all around them. Obviously, we don't want them to look in the right surrounds when there's a horn blasting. We want to keep their, their focus on the screen. But, and it also, in, in other ways, it gives you more real estate to play other sounds on the screen when you can get the music off the screen a little bit. It tends to be less of a competition that way. Um, one of the things we're doing in a lot of these songs these days, which was unheard of years ago, is we have lots of low end actually in the surrounds pumping from the song, and we rely on a relative balance, let's say, of a drum kit with overheads sitting somewhere mid in the room. They're not actually living on the screen anymore. And a lot of background vocal parts are actually living off the screen too. So there are only certain elements that are actually sitting right up on it. And that's a way of creating space. And we would have never done that before. And then it always makes you in great fear for when you get your first test screen and you go out in preview. And that, yes, if we dub that in Grant and now we're going to some theater somewhere, is it actually going to translate? And it's kind of a very scary place to be but yet it is a good creative place to push into the future that way. And obviously in anything like Atmos, it just gets better and better how you can actually make the sound eventually, the focus of the sound is living 
in the center of the room. Does that kind of make sense? You know, I, I've, uh, one thing I, I say I love surrounds, but I always, uh, in the back of my mind, I always think, well, what about those theaters that really suck? <laughs> and, you know, we've all been to them. Um, they were probably more, more of them than the really good ones. And so I, you know, I wonder, well, gee, what, you know, what if the surrounds aren't working or one side is working? Or for that matter, what if the center channel is out? Or, you know, on and on. I mean, I've honestly been in those kind of theaters. Do you guys ever think about that? Are you, does it concern any of you? I, well, I know, yeah, you know, we sort of don't want to oh, work to the lowest common denominator. But, but you have to keep that when you're dubbing in the back of your mind. What happens if the surrounds are off? which can happen, or the subwoofer almost always is not playing at the correct level in multiplex theaters because they're concerned about bleed. So you have to know that your mains supplying enough low end, you have to know that you've got enough. You can't just some, put something exclusively in the surrounds, just with the, in the back of your mind, you're worried that maybe the surrounds are off. So you, have, you do have to have it in the back of your mind when you're dubbing for sure. I, I worked on a film recently with a famous rock band and the content of that LFE was tested before we ever even got to preview. We went to so many different theaters within this city as a crew, day after day. Some days we actually sat in three dubbing stages at the same time on the same day. And it all had to do with what did we pull in that, put in the LFE and will it ever live in the middle of Iowa? And it's actually a very frightening thing. And as we start to get involved in more complicated formats, you know, I hate to be the naysayer, but I'm always leaning on the side of conservative what if. And that what if is huge if you have a major component with a band that has an enormous low end in an arena at 140 dB, and you're the knucklehead that relied on that LFE. So I think it's every day a problem for us, and I, I, I don't know how to address that. And that was one thing I thought about coming to this today. Do we really talk about that? <laughs> our, our fear of the presenters. Well, it does seem like the, the LFE channel, the LFE in general, is the most variable in, in any, every theater. It seems to be somewhat different. Uh, you know, when you take, you know, I've taken mixes from, or heard them in one theater versus another, and the LFE is always different. I think music has an advantage in a way some of the other sound elements in the picture are because we have melody, or if we're lucky, we do. And- um, we, we used to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and folks, so in that, in that mindset, as long as folks are walking out of the theater, humming the theme, the, the music in its own way has done a job. And, and yeah, you, you mix based on sometimes taking the lowest common denominator of theaters into account, but you have to make it as great as you can because ultimately that's what lives on. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was, I was on the blurb in the, the program said something about people are thrown by uh, moving sound and some of the immersive elements. And I almost question that because I've been to so many theaters where, you know, as you said, you find that a speaker's out. I watched, um, uh, what was it, Charlie and the Chocolate Fest? No, Alice in Wonderland, which I worked on in a IMAX theater in Vegas. And I swear the whole soundtrack was four frames out from start to finish. 
I was the only person who went up and said, do you know your film's out of sync? There, not one person in the audience knew or cared. I've never seen anyone complain. So there's part of it. I think if you start pandering to how screwed up some of those theaters are, I, you sort of have to just suspend disbelief. And when you're in this room, make it sound as good as it can with whatever your format that you're delivering, whether it's 5171 and, or now Atmos. A lot of mixes are being done native in that. So it's a tough one. I agree. It's, it's depressing when you get out there. But, <laughs> but I don't think we can... Uh, sort of strategize as we're mixing too much about that. Yeah, I agree. I, I've, I've always sort of taken the approach, well, I, I, I can't possibly determine how horrible some theater might be, so I just make it as good as I, I possibly can, and then whatever happens after that happens. So and my next question is, um, uh, maybe this is more for you guys that are music editors. Um, and do you, uh, do you find that composers have thoughts about how their music should be mixed in surround, or do they pretty much just leave it up to the to mixers? Uh, you know, it seems to me that um, a lot of composers, particularly the mid to low budget, although that not exclusively, are managing their tracks in a preset 5.1 format that is very close to how they want it to sound. And they're also in their own studio mixing. They may not have the luxury of a, a separate mixer, <laughs> that they are considering that. They're paying attention to dialogue and sound effects, even if it's a rough representation, um, balancing their music. So they do hope, in my experience, that it gets transmitted that way onto the film albeit balanced with sound, uh, sound effects and dialogue, but their music is kind of the way they want it in uh, many, many cases, I think. Okay. Um, you know, we have now that, you know, run currently, we have 5.1 formats, 7.1, and now these immersive sound formats. Do you guys have a favorite? Is there anything that, is there a format that you think really, really works the best? Um, at all? Is there, is there one that, that you, know, you guys find is especially, maybe Andy might have well, a, a thought about that. Well, I've, I've, for, from my experience, my favorite is Atmos. It, 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 basically, there's, you can do whatever you want. You've got full frequency response all the way around the room. You can put sound anywhere you want, and there's no limitations. You know, with 5.1 or Dolby Stereo, there's always something you have to worry about, something that, that you can't do. But with Atmos, there seems to be absolutely no limitation, which is wonderful. And I think because they scale their playback depending on the playback room, you get pretty much what you mix wherever you go, as long as the room's been properly maintained. I was just going to say that that gets back to your sort of paranoia um, observation. We were, uh, Dennis and I worked on Peabody, which is a DreamWorks animation film, and we did that natively. Dennis mixed in Atmos, and then we mixed the whole film native and Atmos at Fox with Andy Nelson. Um, but Jeffrey Katzenberg only wanted to hear 5-1 playbacks because he said, I want to hear what 90% of the world's going to hear. Because, you know, you guys knock yourself out on the Atmos, have fun and all that. But I just want So we were constantly checking 7-1, and always playing back for ourselves to make sure when Jeffrey came in that, that he, what he was hearing was translating through all the formats. Yeah, compatibility is definitely an issue 
You know, the Atmos crash downs from out of the, out of the RMUs are actually quite good. If you do a full Atmos mix and then you just say let's play five one, let's play seven one, the translation is excellent. You have to tweak a little bit, but it's pretty good right out of the box. I think the truth of the matter is it's a case by case basis. Um, one of the greatest music mixers I ever worked for put it very simply: soft when they talk, loud when they kiss, <laughs> <laughs> and essentially whatever format we're talking about does have to sort of conform to that general philosophy. So with Atmos and more inversive things, we, we have more to do when they kiss. Um, but, you know, when they're, when they're talking, we still have certain guidelines, if Andy and Joe would agree, that, that still uh, pertain as much as they did 50 years ago. So um, my next question is, um, you know, when you, I know when I deliver mixes, I have to create separation stems and all that. So for you guys, how do you determine what, what to put in what stems? How many to have, what they should be? Uh, I think it, uh, a lot of what I do initially is to actually talk to the, stage and the recording mixer to find out if there's a track limitation technically or that would be the first thing then I go to the composer and say you've got 48 channels you've got 68 you've got 100 whatever it might be and that would determine how they set up their track uh, stem count uh, but also deferring to the their mixer um, and I think the traditional guidelines of isolating in separate stems, uh, solo instruments, maybe effect type sound instruments, pads, and then orchestras. There's kind of a fairly traditional and still to this day uh, formula for how the stems should be split out, I think. Well, one of the things that I've thought about this for so long is actually trying to convince the team that I'm on um, to cooperate with the size of the stem set that we actually want to use. And I think it's, it's gotten so large now, and for good reason, but it's gotten so large that it actually changes the role of all of us. And um, I'm finding most often now that the music editors I'm working with are really part engineer, part mixer, part music editor. And then falling into my camp as I'm dealing with all these stem sets and updating the stem sets when we're in final, I'm actually part music editor too in the midst of all this. And, and um, some of the songs I've done lately, my own multi-track that sits for each song could be around 350 tracks, and my stem set that goes to the stage is around 220 tracks. And um, I think one of the really cool things about what I get to do is I'm on a project sometimes for over a year for each film, and so rather than we throw the ideas into the air right before final and say this is our stem set, we actually start way, way before testing and preview to, to start creating what actually works. And sometimes you're wrong, and you got to go back and reinvent this with everybody. Well, I was wrong about those guitars. We actually got to break them into this many pieces, and this is why. And how, how that stem set is created comes from all of us as a team these days, rather than it used to be able to dubbing mixer who's going to sit in the music chair says, this is what I have on my desk, and this is what you get. Um, and I think that when I'm approaching a, a, a project in the very beginning and we're looking at our team and everything, I just always want to know that the team I'm with is going to be open 
to how big that has to be. Because the last thing I ever want to have happen is me running down the hallway to go back to my room and final because the so-and-so isn't out in a separate stem. And these days, with the technology we have, we have the ability to pretty much have the stem sets we want. You know, pretty darn big. And, and I think when I talked to a music editor in the beginning, you start to find out how comfortable are you with exchanging these enormous stem sets and why and how will you do it. And I'm actually very proud lately as to all of our, our data management skills to be able to, to take a song and mix it 30 different times and evolve those stem sets and keep it all together and not be actually ripping our hair out. And um, so most often, I'm more the better. And you can always sum them. The music editor always sums what we overdo. But at the same time, when you guys have to go and make an edit, I've already prepared for you, whatever, or we have it right there when the director asks. And I, I think that if we want to look at our technology today, that that's one of the great benefits of it is, is the size of our stem sets. Yeah, I don't think there's a problem for any music editor to deal with massive or small size. Most of what I was pertaining to was kind of a general rule to cover the lower budget films, mid budget that don't have the time or a capability for that kind of thing, which is great. But uh, so kind of a more of a generalization. Yeah. yeah. The main thing is when the director says, "Can you get rid of that?" You don't have to say no. <laughs> I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna say Dennis knows better than anyone. I'm very um, selfish in wanting anything that can be split out. I'd like split out, which um, most composers would prefer to score everybody together because they get a better performance but we just by it's almost routine now that we do strings separate and woodwind separate and brass separate and it's um for exactly what andy said you know when the director says i hate woodwinds and or i can't stand that flute solo or just for conforming if you're on a very difficult picture that's constantly turning over having everything split out makes editing uh, I mean, you can always make a decent edit if they were all together, but you can make a much better edit if you have stuff separate, so. Yeah, th that was actually <laughs> leading to my next question was, you know, nowadays it seems the style of recording uh, orchestra is in stems, separation, strings, brass, percussion, et cetera, separate. Um, I know you, you've touched on that, but um, do you guys prefer that? Um, personally, Sonically, an orchestra, um, the, the musicians struggle, quite frankly, um, when they have to record separately. Uh, there's intonation issues, timing issues. Uh, it's especially difficult for brass players. So there is a bit of a price for that. Um, but I understand mechanically. So. It, maybe it's better. Do you guys prefer that? Do you prefer that method, or what's your feeling? Uh, once again, case-by-case case basis. Um, if you're doing a big action film, like I, last year I worked on Guardians of the Galaxy, and as Bill said, there was quite a bit of picture change uh, up till the very end. If we hadn't had everything stemmed out the way Dennis described, we would have been less able to make a more smooth group of edits. If you're doing a quiet picture, what we call a, a dialogue music film, then you might gain quite a bit of having the orchestra play it as a whole because we're not 
worried so much about following a spaceship and an explosion or something like that. We're working in terms of uh, emotion. A good friend of mine is Tom Newman, and he is just not the kind of guy to do stuff like that because all his music, while he does use prelays and things like that, when he has everybody in the room, everybody plays together because he doesn't feel how, you know, how can the woodwinds really know what to play if they're not up against the strings and the brass and things like that. A, a perfect world scenario, which is rare because of money. Um, we, Dennis and I have worked on a couple Burton films and he can't, um, he can't understand what we're doing unless he hears it all played at once. So we usually have the whole orchestra sitting there do a couple run-throughs, so he gets a sense of what it what what the cue is going to sound like. Then he'll make his notes, and then we have everyone just sit there and do sections, which is a very expensive way of doing something. And then Danny, in this case, uh, usually at the end or even at the beginning, will ask to do a tute, uh, like a, as you were saying, well, a performance with everybody playing, which the orchestra adores and loves. And typically, that's what's going to go on the CD if it doesn't get into the film. So, um, but. As Steve said, there's, uh, you know, budget is everything, and that's extremely rare to be able to do that's that. That's a great luxury to have. <laughs> Money. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let's talk about music and sound effects. Um, you know, uh, in the ideal world, you know, there would be a coordination of music and sound effects. There would be communication, but regrettably, it happens rarely. Uh, so I ask you guys, do you try to communicate with the sound designer music or sound editor before uh, recording and mixing of the score? Uh, as much as possible, I try to send the sound design people, the sound person, the um, demos of the composer, even if they may change. So they get an idea of where the, and they put them in their Pro Tools in sync, and they can get an idea of what the composer is thinking, what's going on. Uh, invariably, that's a great start, and ideally, that should be continued, but very often, time constraints and deadlines, it tends to kind of go by the wayside. So you might get a handful of cues, and then by the time we get to the mix, or I can you know, get the rest to you, that kind of thing. So we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants in a way. But um, that's ideal, to be able to communicate the music musical ideas to the sound design people. Uh, and um, I think that's really important. It doesn't happen as often, I think, as it should. A few years ago, I worked on a picture called Bullet to the Head, which was seen by literally hundreds of people. <laughs> and um, it sort of starts uh, with a score that has sort of a tune to It was a band score as opposed to an orchestral score. And the sound super was the great Dane Davis. And he heard that. And because the scene, the movie opens in a train yard, he got the sound of the train into the same sync as the music. And we did, it sort of starts with the train doing its thing. And it does just this invisible handoff to the bass and drums doing that. And that was one, it's worth it just to see that. You can turn off the movie after that, but it's, <laughs> it's really good to, to hear that. So he, he, he actually listened to the score and then created his sound. Right. He just, just whipped that out on the dubbing stage and we all went, that well, is great. That movie must be the entire list of movies that do that. 
that's been known to happen. Um, one of the things that's been interesting lately for me is when we have these performances of people singing on camera, you actually have to jump in bed with the sound designer and you have to figure out, okay, who's got the snaps, who's got the dancing feet, who had whatever. And by the end of the day, recently on a picture I just did, we actually over and over and over created all kinds of different sounds for someone who's making noises on the stage and singing at the same time and it's an integral part of the music. And the, sign, the sound design went around and around and around. It's your turn today. You get to do meteor thighs and I'm gonna do more musical claps with people who have a better backbeat. I mean, it, it went on forever, but I, I think that that's a great thing. And Mangini, who just did the keynote, we actually also did that um, in terms of live concert movies, getting involved in who's gonna mic the audience and how, how complex is it and miking all these different zones and me being responsible for cutting and mixing what we called synchronous audience and him creating what we called designed audience. And then it, on the dubbing stage, we'd be choosing all the time what kind of flavor at that one musical moment we would have. And I actually found, I always wanted to just give, as a music guy, give him back my audience so that I wouldn't, I, we wouldn't get involved. The only problem is, is that my audience carried all the tails to all the singing and all the ring-offs. And if I pitched a vocal, and if I didn't go in and look at that audience, I would have an in-tune vocal and an out-of-tune tail. And it, it, it's, it's just nuts. So then we got involved. I, we're not supposed to mention plugins and things, but we got involved in all this technology as to how to tune the audience to be in tune with the pitch changes within the music. So, you know, when you, you know, when you have this interaction with the, uh, um, so, you know, sound editors and all, do you guys communicate this conversation or how do you communicate it with, with the composer if, if that happens, if you have this conversation with, with, you know, sound designers? What do you, what do you say to the composer? How do you, you know, hey, the, the, the sound designer's doing such and such. Do you... Well, just on the last couple films, I've actually advocated having the sound designers come to the spotting sessions, which has never happened because either the director said, no, 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 they're doing their things, so then we'll fight it out on the stage, which is how it typically ends up, and which is sad because, I mean, if there was a plan, in the case of the last one, which was another Elfman project, he would have loved to hear them make a case take this action scene, you know, it's a beautiful sound opportunity. And I love not to write that cue because that's never gonna be heard anyway. And so it would be, it's too bad it's not in our DNA just to have that on the schedule where sound and music are gonna to get together. You'll never get a composer to a sound spotting, but you might get a sound designer to a, a music spotting. And I, I know I, Danny would be fine, and I think most of the composers I've worked with would be fine as long as they're not being taking, telling them where to spot the music or whatever. You know, it could be contentious, I suppose, but usually it's a big happy family. So uh, you know, I've noticed in some films personally, I have I struggle to differentiate the score from the sound design. There's times where I just can't tell which is which. Um, 
and maybe Andy, you can sort of, you know, step into this one. How do you, how do you deal with that on the on the stage? Um, you know, a where you have question because you've got, you know, it's like the Democrats and the Republicans. Sometimes you've got there's a, two different schools on the stage, and sometimes they're arm wrestling over who has control. But uh, you know, ultimately, it's the director's decision. So more 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 often than not, we'll just present different options and score in, in one section and then, and then we'll give the sound design people a chance to present their vision of it and ultimately the filmmakers decide. But it, you, know, you have to be very mindful of not, you know, being not too partisan and, and, and catering to both camps on, on the stage. So what recommendations would, would and any of you make to sort of avoid that so that, you know, you don't have this conflict or there's not going to be, oh, well, you know, something's going to, going to be dropped or you know well, hopefully that communication i think that your, your idea about having the sound guys at the music spotting is ideal but hopefully both camps are communicating long before it hits the stage and it doesn't come to that but off, more often than not it doesn't occur which is unfortunate i think one of the key things that uh get in trouble when you don't have that communication and as, as we're saying it's kind of rare to have a in-depth continuous communication between music and sound but um, I was on a film where there was a, a scene where um, bank robbers were coming into the building bank and robbing the bank. So it was kind of an action drama scene, of course. Uh, there was sound and music, uh, yet the director was saying, well, there's kind of a tonality in there. What is that? And we ended up, well, let's take out the music and uh, let's uh, put in the music without the sound. So we were trying to, we actually took it apart uh, piece by piece and discovered that, well, the sound design had a tonality in it, um, which seemed similar to the music, couldn't tell, like you were saying, Dennis, couldn't tell sometimes whether it was sound or music. And I think, uh, again, I have a personal traditional take on sound design and music that when the sound design has tonality in it, um, this is where I think you can get that kind of potential conflict, and it doesn't have to be a conflict. This is where the discussion can maybe come up early. If it doesn't come up early, then you get the situation where you're on the stage trying to decipher it if it tends to be um, conflicting or similar tonality or a dissonance that was unheard before. So, When, when it works together, as Steve's saying, sometimes dubs um, can turn into a little lucha libre sort of experience where we had we had scored this part and sound has this part in this in this very room we mixed uh, remember the titans and there was a scene where it had been scored but the uh rob septon the sound supervisor said well what if this part we just lost the music and we just have these big football hits in a sort of a stylized slow-mo way and you know what it was great. It, it just made the whole thing. Now, going into it, I don't think I or, or the composer would have thought that this would have worked, but it did. So it, it's important for us to maintain what we think is important, but the ultimate winner has to be the film. Yeah, I think very often you find um, a creative decision at the stage that no one realized before where take out the music, just leave the sound. I mean, sound can be very dramatic and very emotional um, uh, in a very musical way. And maybe this music should be taken out or maybe it should be thinned out and cut out in stems or maybe only use a high tonality if the sound is a low tonality. Things like that can be done, you know, 
at the mix stage, at the dub. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, your interaction uh, with composers. Um, and I know uh, uh, some mixers and music editors are actually quite involved in the creative process uh, as a score is being composed. Um, are you guys involved in that? Have you had experiences where you are? Sort of how do you handle that with, with the composer? Well, for starters, it's before noon on a Saturday, so there's no interaction with composers. Right? <laughs> uh, I, I think everybody has various relationships. If you've been the music editor for a composer for 20 years, like my good friend Bill Bernstein has been with Tom Newman, he's involved with virtually every step of Tom's writing process. Other shows, you show up for the meetings where the director hears the music, and you're hearing it for the first time, too. Uh, I'm very involved with Danny, but it's more, it's not so much as a, Bill's amazing. He's an incredible musician and they're best buddies. And it, that's a phenomenal relationship they have. One that I'm jealous of, but one I don't think I could ever create on my own either. But with Danny, he, he leans on me a lot for logistical things and figuring out things and conforming things, um, but he writes everything. So, but he, he also likes to have me as a spy in the cutting room to know what, what are they thinking? What's in this now? Is it gonna change? Make sure I'm not working on stuff that's gonna be gone or, or it, I'm wasting my time because it takes longer to rewrite something than to write it for the first time. So um, I have a pretty good relationship, but it's, it's not like Bill's, Bill Bernstein. He's, He's, like, he's definitely like a producer. So, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I have a question about um, how do you handle a situation where a uh, composer has written a piece of music and there's an element in there that he or she absolutely loves. But, you know, and maybe it's great for the music, but you know it, that it's really bad for the, for the movie. For example, a, a strong say a woodwind solo that's played under real soft dialogue. You just know it's going to be a problem. But this composer just loves it. How do you handle that? Uh, well, I think if that awareness is early on during the writing, I would probably make that, make the composer aware that this may be an issue around the scene. If they insist on it, then it will be stemmed out, you know, separate. So in case there's a question on the stage or the director feels like it's in the way or uh, it might be possible to do some editing to help shape it perhaps and still keep something like that to work around dialogue perhaps. I always um, let the composer obviously do what they think they should be doing, try to have it separate if possible and then blame Andy for taking it out <laughs> later. <so. laughs> um, So let's say now you're in a, you're in a spotting session uh, or a dub, and there's a lot of tension between the director and composer. Um, what do you do? Hide. <laughs> you can't hide. You know, maybe they're looking, maybe they're looking to you. I, 
I, for me, I, I think at the spotting session, the honeymoon's still on. Yeah. So um, I, I've never really had a, a contentious uh, spotting session uh, between uh, a director and a composer. Um, How about the scoring day? Oh, well, now. Anything <laughs> <laughs> uh, spot? Well, uh, a story that uh, Dennis and I, because of the compacted post schedules, like when we all started, we had a lot more time to find the film, and now things are, are compressed, and the director, poor guy, is, he's stretched every different way. And I, I don't know that they have the same amount of time to get into the music that they used to. And it, there was one session that uh, Dennis was, was uh, engineering, and I was the, one of the music editors, and the director uh, heard the cue, and we turned to him and said, what do you think? And the director turns to me, and he says, I don't know, do I like it? And I said, yeah, you like it. And he said, I like it. <laughs> that was it for the cue, and we moved on. So, it, you know, that's an, uh, that's an extreme case, but uh, there... The, the whole exorcist story that I've been told for many years is that um, Lalo Schifrin got hired to do The Exorcist. And on the first break after an hour, which we call a 10, um, Bill Friedkin came out in the studio and fired uh, Lalo Schifrin. That was, sorry, it's great music, not for my film, goodbye. And what do you do? And, and he had heard this song by a guy named Michael Veal called Tubular Bells. And all the next thing you know, that becomes the score of The Exorcist. So spotting usually very friendly. By the time you get to scoring, there have been a lot of meetings between now and then. And if there's any sort of, there's any disharmony or if they don't gel, you know it by the time you've gotten to the scoring session. And then you mentioned, what about at the dub? So usually the composer is not at the dub. It's in the music editor's hands and the mixers to make sure that everyone's happy, the director, producers. And when issues come up, the music editor is uh, representing the composer and doing their best to maintain the integrity of the composer's music. However, often, as we probably know, the director might want to make changes, and this is where editorial comes in to... Uh, help balance the two. Uh, usually by that time, the composer's in Tahiti and see you later. They don't own the music anymore and you're fairly often free to do what deems to be correct at that point because you mentioned what about that stage, the end stage. So, I'm curious, Andy might have, or, or Joseph, probably have seen some interaction between directors and composers on a playback on your stage or is that rare? It's pretty rare, yeah. It, they, they, it's maybe only 25% of the time where the composer will come for a final playback. And, you, and generally, the notes are subtle. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything more. <laughs> um, one of the things I've noticed lately in a dub, and it's, it's, um, it's just actually crazy to be a part of, if, if you're in a position like I've been in where you've been living this movie with all of these songs and all this music, and finally the score included with the director forever. And now though you have the studio and the studio brass in the room with you on the stage and it's not really a playback, you're just there working out musical issues and you have different film producers with different opinions about the music. The director has an opinion about the music. The song producers have an opinion about 
what they've done on the songs. And a person like me is stuck in a sandwich. And if I raise my hand and say, well, actually, those sections of that song in the version that you're referring to, my dear director, what you're really asking for, you know, we did in August. And the room is looking at you in the studio of brass. What they want is what they did yesterday because they just spent $200,000 or the last several weeks sweetening and redoing everything because they felt we had to. And the director, of course, is always wanting to go back to what they created and where they began and demo love and all that kind of thing. And it is absolutely nerve wracking. You see your entire career going past <laughs> in that moment on that stage. And you wonder if you're gonna come out alive or not. And so my opinion is to tell the truth. I gotta be the guy to say, well, actually, if we, you know, if we will, if we go to the stem from so-and-so, so-and-so, can we hear that please? Okay, and then I did another stem and then you asked me to do another stem and they go through all the different versions and the chips just have to fall where they fall. And um, I, I don't even know what to say about it because I think it's more perilous than it's ever been because we have more options than we've ever had. Yeah, options. It seems uh, uh, decision-making just gets put off to the very end, which is, and in everything, it seems, a film editing, everything. Because of the, there are so many, cap there's so much capability electronically now, um, it kind of works against us in so many ways. Well, and I, I can remember a thing that was really comforting when I first started in this business and I had a couple of really good mentors that if we wanted a, a change in something, it could take us three days by the time we got through transfer. Then go back, set the mix back up, get it all done, get it through transfer, then you finally have your elements. And, and that some days I think about what happened to transfer? <laughs> what happened to that buffer in there somewhere? Well, you know, even in dubs, it used to take two hours to change reels. It's less than five minutes now. We used to play ping pong, not anymore. <laughs> Yeah, why don't we, um, so we'll, we'll conclude the panel for the moment, and why don't we open it up to questions from the audience, if you guys uh, have any, anybody have any questions at all? You need it for the recording. I just was wondering with preparing stems, you know, five one versus Atmos versus seven one, and delivering any uh, insight into easier ways to do that. I've done two Atmos shows, and what we have to do because of the nature of the Atmos systems we were working on is the the score in general fills the room, and then you can strip out particular monaural elements that can have fun with the joystick as it flies around and things like that. So when you're stripping things out, you are looking for that which is which is self, pretty self-contained, which is not a wide sound. Well, what, what I do, because um, I do, I'm able to do uh, uh, native Atmos mixes at my facility. I'm, I think I still think I have the only facility for music that can do that now, but uh, I actually create a full Atmos um, mix, which includes basically is a combination of seven one stems and 
objects. And those then go over to the stage and it's either um, mixed into the final dub via Pro Tools or they, what they call ingest the automation and the, you know, panning into the console. And, but the, it, it's, it's, honestly, it's sort of handled in, in a similar manner to, to a, any 5.1 or 7.1 mix, uh, with the exception that I, and I've found for the most part, um, music, music elements floating around the room in general is probably not a great idea. It's a little distracting. Um, I generally will sort of position things and leave them there. I might move a few things around, and obviously there's exceptions, but um, it's, it's prepped in a similar way to maybe 5.1 or 7.1 that you guys are familiar with, with the exception of the objects, and that separates it you know, in a great deal from you know, other mixes. Um, hi. Uh, so my question would be, as somebody who has a dream of one day becoming a re-recording mixer and working in this industry, obviously one of the most important things to learn, and obviously a lot of it's to experience, is the politics that you guys were talking about on the mix stage. Um, and as like a re-recording mixer, uh, when you've got um, a sound supervisor or, or a composer or the music editor who's representing the composer arguing back and forth about whether or not the effects should be taking the stage or if the, if the music is really delivering the emotion, do you, as the re-recording mixer, essentially become a puppet to the director or do you ever dare to interject your own opinion? Or how do you, you navigate that? You have to that? be sensitive to the politics of the room. That's the key. I think the main thing is listening. Just be aware of everyone's opinion and, you know, and, and make sure everyone gets their, their, their time in the sun. We should try every idea if possible. You know, sometimes you've got an autocratic director and he, what he says is goes, no one else speaks. But you just have to gauge, you know, gauge the, uh, the environment. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a learned skill. It takes years. All directors are, are autocrats and thank God, <laughs> or else nothing would ever get done. But a smart one would ask Andy, what do you think? Because one of the great things about coming to the, the dubbing stage, uh, if you ever get there, is you're probably the freshest ears of the movie. Everybody else has been on it and are highly invested by working on the score, working on the effects or things like that. The, the, mixers, the mixers have a perspective that is extremely valuable. So a director that does not uh, ask these fellows for their opinion, I think is hurting himself. By the way, I just, just want to point out, you know, a guy like Andy, um, you know, is very much an artist and, and um, the, the real good directors recognize that. And they're, they work with the, the mixers that they choose uh, for that. They want, they want their artistry, they want their input. The, the autocratic anybody is missing out a lot, you know, because somebody else just by chance might have a good idea that'll actually help their product. And so the smart ones, the, the good ones, know that. And good luck to you, by the way. <laughs> I, I just one thought about that. I think that now more than it used to be, when getting notes on the dubbing stage, 
I think we're, we're now growing into more of a collective and rather than the director and maybe a producer actually giving their notes and then they walk away. I, lately I've been finding that there are a lot of notes on the stage and everyone's participating because things are getting so complex and that they are heavily relying on everyone's individual area of expertise to come forth and deliver their notes at that time. It's like, speak up, you know, say your piece now. And I think that's a really a, a cool change. Hey, I was wondering if anybody had some, uh, could speak about a philosophy about how or why you would spread elements of a, of a music mix out into the room uh, versus keeping them more on the, uh, on the screen. Um, if there's a, an emotional thing that you're doing or if there's something about putting weight in certain places or, or uh, if anybody has thoughts. Well, yeah, there's, well, there's something to be said about the audience feeling that they're inside the orchestra, like they're sitting there with or with a band. Like it brings them more on the stage if the sound's around them rather than just uh, you know, a 2D, on a 2D panel with the screen. And I, and I think the other benefit is you've got more real estate to play other sounds other than the music if it's off the screen. And it gives dialogue more room to breathe. You can play your background sound effects. It just helps. I, for me, I think there are certain things that we react to emotionally that are great to sit in the room. So for example, if there's like a, a pulsing synth or a vocal part that's doing something that's very hypnotic and it's very repetitious, that's obviously a much better element to live in the audience rather than the on-camera vocal that's happening right over here, which needs a lot of space because now these vocals answered over here. And so you're actually basically clearing musical elements off the screen to make way for those things that are dramatic that we have to cater to. And I think for me, one of the best ways to, to win a battle in a situation with music versus effects, like in a big song scene, is to make sure that I'm not taking up too much room in the, in the music that's sitting there because I'm going to lose against those effects. And then the vibe and the feel in the pocket of the song is going to be gone. So by taking a lot of those rhythmic elements out into the audience, I, I think I kind of win the battle. One thing I, I usually keep in mind, though, is if I have high-impact elements like you know big drums or something like that, I might bring it a little bit off the screen, but I tend to keep it close to the screen for more for practical reasons. Um, you know, behind the screen are the big cabinets. And, um, you know, they're the ones that really can generate the most impact. So if I have something that needs that, I don't want to get too far away from those cabinets. If I get out into the surrounds, even in Atmos, where you have full range, you have really high quality surrounds and all, they still don't quite have the, the um, just the, the depth, the size, and the, the, the capability. Also, they're spread wide. These are in front of you and coming at, at the audience. So, you know, that's kind of a one sort of specialized thing I always keep in mind personally. Um, but, you know, the points that these guys made are really excellent about ambient things or things out into the room, I feel, actually draws the audience in. There are some directors who would disagree with that, but um, that's my feeling. I, like I said, I love surround, so. Um, Time for one more question. Is there anything, anybody out there? 
do you guys ever really consider what happens to the movie after it's had its first run in Atmos and it's off the big screen and it's out of the arc light and it's now finding its way into home theater and finally finding its way into people listening on their cell phones and iPads and watching the movie. And uh, do you guys ever like really think about what is it gonna sound like when you Absolutely. get that far. It, it, I mean, that's where the majority of the people are going to start looking at that's your That's where films. it lives forever, too. That's the film. They're not going to go back in the theaters watch. It's going to be on, on Blu-ray or on free. Well, on the larger budget films, we frequently get two, three, four days to do a near-field mix where we set up smaller near-field speakers. You know, we limit the dynamic range a little bit. And just to be aware that, it, you know, you're trying to get the director's vision to play at the home as well. And that's, that's a very important thing, definitely. I, I've been finding lately, I've been having this dialogue in my head about records and mastering engineers and the different formats that the mastering engineers are catering to and how those mixes play on the iPhone versus the iPad versus the computer and all that. And I've been, and I've been going through this. And, and so for me, the near field actually more and more is something I really care about because it used to be that we didn't care that much about the near field. And now, it's like you say, it's living on forever and the near field is everything. And I'm actually, um, there's a mastering engineer that's now moved on to the Sony lot right across from my room. And I'm contemplating kind of all these, these cool interactions between the two of us of how we might be able to kind of advance. Because I've always said the dubbing stage is our mastering engineer. It's our everything. When you try to explain to a record guy, what ha why don't we have the mastering engineer here? And anyway, I think that there's, there's going to be a lot of room for growth in the deliverables relative to the next. That said, I, I think it's, I don't think any of us think that we would prefer people see our work on an iPad or an iPhone. <laughs> Thank you very much, gentlemen. Let's give it up. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this panel discussion on music mixing from last year's Mix Magazine Sound for Film event. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Rode Microphones, for sponsoring this podcast series, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com. <laughs>